This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. The White House Correspondents' Dinner, the crown jewel of Washington's spring prom season, roared back this past week, freed from many of the physical and psychological restraints of the COVID pandemic. But the pandemic is but one of many turning points in the dinner's long history. George Condon, our friend, who's the White House Correspondents' Association historian and White House correspondent for National Journal, joins the podcast to discuss this august D.C. institution. George, welcome back. Wait, I'm going to discuss something that's august? August, yes. Well, I figured that using august is perhaps more appropriate than the last uh, thing that we, uh, the last big D.C. institution that you and I discussed on this podcast, which was the gridiron. I mean, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, going back to, you know, 1921 or whatever, this is like a a mere pup, you know, compared to the gridiron, right? (laughs) That's some truth to that, yes. Um, So let's talk uh, about about the dinner. I mean, you know, I think a lot of, uh, this dinner gets more attention than a lot of the other, um, you know, sort of galas that populate the the, the winter, late winter and early spring uh, months in Washington. I, I get some, I'm afraid I'm to blame for part of that. Oh, excellent. I love, I love blaming people. Oh, things. Because, like, this uh, is why I became an editor. Well, when, <laughs> when I was vice president in uh, 1993, uh, I pushed very hard to get it on TV. It had never been on TV and I prevailed on that. So uh, over the opposition, I should say of the networks, they were the biggest opponents of putting it on TV because a that they didn't want to have to work that night. They were enjoying the dinner, and b uh, we only had space for one camera, uh, so they were going to have to take the feed from C-SPAN, and that got us into union issues because the the networks were all union and uh, C-SPAN was was non-union. Uh, but it has been on TV uh, ever since uh, 1993, and and it it is a it is a thing. I mean, some of the other dinner. I mean, obviously the gridiron is not televised. It is you know it, it you, you barely have lights uh, at the gridiron, um, <laughs> but uh, you know sometimes the the congressional dinner um, uh, is is televised. Some of the but a lot of these the the this gets all the attention, and I would argue that. Rightfully so, because this is the one that the president comes to. Well, there was there was a period in the uh, in the nineteen seventies when it it took a back seat. Uh, it went through a, a decade of absolutely abysmal, terrible uh, entertainment, uh, and the radio TV dinner uh, was getting the big names. Uh, and uh, uh, for example, they had. Uh, uh, Chevy Chase and Gerald Ford combined at their dinner to do something where Ford actually ripped the tablecloth off the table, uh, you know, mimicking Chevy Chase's uh, portrayal of him uh, uh, as a clumsy person. Uh, that, that was, that was the dark period for the White House Correspondence Center. 
Well, the 70s were a dark period for uh, for a, a, a lot of folks. Um, but let's let's start with like just the origin of, of this. I mean, the the White House Correspondents Association, which is the you know who puts on the dinner, was founded a little bit before they started putting on the dinner. Like, let's talk about their history a little bit. Well, it was uh, when Wood, Woodrow Wilson became president, uh, he invented the uh, the press conference, uh, and he had uh, you know twice weekly press conferences. And the rules at the time were you couldn't quote the president. They were very valuable for the coverage, but you could not quote the president as saying anything. And uh, two things happened. One, uh, a couple of reporters broke the rules. Uh, you know, the, the main topic in, in 1913 was, uh, was Mexico and the revolution and uh, the, the President Wilson offered an opinion as to when the Mexican government would fall and uh, never intended it to be quoted. And, and one of the uh, reporters did. Uh, and secondly, you had uh, what they called tipsters in that day uh, t- uh, trying to attend the press conference to get uh, information they could use to make a killing in the stock market. So there were no guidelines as to who uh, could attend. Uh, and Wilson got furious and threatened to end the press conference. Uh, and you had the standing committee of correspondence in the, uh, in, in the Senate was the highest ranking journalism organization at the time. And they threatened to take over control of who would attend White House press conferences. And there was no way in hell that the White House reporters wanted uh, Congress reporters to tell them what to do. So uh, after a a second mix up at the press conferences and second time Wilson was angry in January of 1914, uh, just 11 days later, the 11 White House correspondents got together on February 25th, 1914 and form the White House Correspondents Association. Its main purpose being to determine who would be allowed to attend the press conferences. And it, it's 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 kind of amazing to think that it you know from such like like chaos you know like I mean like we, we would never allow you know people from a market firm you know or or a financial hedge fund or something like that to attend to listen in you know on d- deliberations with the press now i mean that's, this is like quite literally why we have our standing committee so we can uh, have these standards but it's it's it it's almost unfathomable how chaotic you know that the the situation was um and and hence was born you know another organization to sort of standardize and professionalize you know what was uh a, a little murky uh, at at the time uh, and then, so that, you know, from humble beginnings, uh, then we, we start having dinners a few years later uh, in the middle of another pandemic, an influenza <laughs> epidemic. Well, well, what they did was uh, they had sort of an informal uh, dinner just to honor uh, a White House staffer in 1915. And then when World War I came, Wilson stopped the press conferences, so they didn't see any reason to have the uh, association and it sort of went into uh, into a abeyance for for several years, and it wasn't until uh, Harding uh, came in as president uh, that the reporters who had 
staked out Marion, Ohio, uh, for the and had dinners there that they called the Elephant Dinners. Decided when they got to Washington with the new president that hey, we should keep this dinner going, and they they started the association again, uh, and that, that that's when the dinner in 1921 uh, started. And some of the, you know, I mean, it, 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 for the most part, presidents have attended, you know, this, I mean, there, there's a couple of examples of times during, you know, war uh, and so forth that the dinner was, was canceled either because of like security or, or propriety, you know, sort of reasons. But in general, this thing has been going on without interruption and usually with a U.S. president or at least, you know, a vice president or someone high ranking since, since the beginning, which is a, it's quite a remarkable streak. Well, and uh, Calvin Coolidge was the first president to attend in 1924, and he gave, I don't care about his reputation for not talking a lot, he gave an extraordinarily long, boring, discursive speech about the, import- the importance of, of separation of powers. And it was so bad uh, and put such a downer on the evening that they set a rule after that that the president of the United States would not speak at the dinner. <laughs> and and that rule actually became important in getting presidents there because they didn't want to have to give speeches. They wanted to go and drink and have fun. Uh, and that rule held, uh, for the most part, uh, presidents would get up and say, thank you, and I had a good time. But they didn't have any feel any pressure to, to give a speech. Uh, and none of them thought they had to be funny until Kennedy did it in uh, 61. And that put pressure on all the others to, uh, uh, to give it. But the most I- important speech ever given at the dinner uh, was in March of 1941. Uh, and FDR had just gotten Lend-Lease through Congress. And the uh, the week of the dinner, he asked permission of the Correspondence Association, can I give a speech at the dinner? Um, a live broadcast nationwide speech uh, on the war. Uh, and <clears throat> they really didn't particularly want that because they had an <laughs> entire night of comedy planned. Uh, but they set up and it became an incredibly important speech for FDR. It, it was uh, broadcast by the BBC to 33 nations around the world. Um, it, the message was to the democracies of the world, hang on, United, the United States will be there uh, for you. Um, it was condemned on page one in uh, Germany. Uh, Hitler reacted to it. Uh, in, it was page one news in Japan. Uh, and so basically the speech was saying, okay, we're going to be in this war. Americans are going to die too. So that presented a challenge to the correspondence because immediately after the president gives this really somber, serious speech, a... Uh, the MC was Jay Flippin, who was a comedian who also broadcast New York Yankees games. And uh, he proceeded to introduce a, uh, a skit 
in a in a movie made by Paramount News for the dinner, which was all we know is what they let us write in the papers, or it ain't necessarily so. And it had a scene uh, showing reporters bundling, wearing lifelike masks of FDR and Wendell Wilkie in bed together. Then they went, still remember, <clears throat> you just had this speech about the war. They went to uh, the Metropolitan Opera singer, blues singer Dinah Shore, harmon harmonica artist Larry Adler, <laughs> magician Russell Swan, the Varsity 8 male chorus, South American dancer Carmen Amea, Frank Black and the NBC Symphony Orchestra. Not, not the Pixies, Frank Black. No, George O'Connor doing Black. Irish songs. Uh, singers Fred East and William Raymond, uh, the U.S. Navy Band, and the U.S. Navy uh, Music School Singers. That, that's how you followed a speech uh, saying the United States was probably going to be in a, in a war. In a world war, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Soon, they would consume the, the planet for the next five years. <laughs> but that's the most serious speech uh, uh, the, the dinner's ever had. And, I mean, it, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Kennedy, too, because Kennedy had a, a role in helping to um, bring women uh, in, into the correspondence dinner, um, you know, the, the, as, as most uh, social affairs in Washington, official Washington were uh, in the uh, early part of the 20th century and into the mid 20th century. It was an overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male group of participants. And uh, to talk about that and the, and the pressure that Helen Thomas, another trailblazer uh, in, in journalism, uh, put on Kennedy uh, that, that helped bring women into the fold. Well, the popular belief is that it was Helen. It actually, Helen didn't play the, um, the major role in that. Uh, at the time, there were always women in the Correspondence Association. There were always women at press conferences, um, at least going back to Harding. Uh, I, I'm not sure about Wilson. But uh, so women were full members of the Correspondence Association. They paid their dues. $25 a year, uh, but they were not allowed to attend the dinner. Uh, Merriman Smith said, that, uh, the uh, famous uh, UPI reporter covering the White House, said that the dinners were too bawdy uh, to have women there. Well, magicians, harmonica artists. Exactly. You know, like, and and, and, and it, that, that was nonsense. But And the, the pressure kept building through the 40s and the 50s. And Kennedy went to the dinner in 1961, no women, and a number of women really tried to get the message to the president that this wasn't right. And I, I interviewed Bonnie Angelo of Newsday uh, before she died. And she was uh, president of the Women's uh, Press Club. And she did a very smart thing uh, that I found out she went to Pierre Salinger's mother. Pierre Salinger was the White House press secretary. His mother was a journalist writer in France. And she said, you know, this, this isn't right. Women can't go to the dinner. And she was horrified and called her son and bawled him out. And he went to the president and Kennedy said, well, 
tell them I'm not going next year unless women are at the dinner. And Bonnie Angelo was the first woman at the head table uh, seated there uh, as, as the president of the Women's Press Club. And uh, uh, there were, I, I think there were 20 women at, at the dinner that year. And interesting too that I mean, and who who knows? Do you, do you, have you ever come across any um, sort of evidence that that Jackie uh, might have uh, you know weighed in on it too? Her being not just JFK's wife and the first lady, but also a a, a journalist uh, herself before you know becoming more of a full time political uh, spouse. Uh, I mean, she she had been in, in journalism before and then after. I think she worked at, in the magazine industry after uh, JFK's death. Yes, she worked for the Washington Star. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if she did, but she was very careful to keep any pillow talk uh, out of the news. And there, you cannot see her fingerprints uh, anywhere uh, on it, uh, though I, I don't doubt that she probably did push them. And you mentioned some of the entertainment and and boundary busting. Um, again, a lot a lot of these uh, things were again overwhelmingly white. Uh, the, you know, the civil rights era, you know, was was upon us in the in forties and fifties uh, and and sixties. Um, what was who who were the who was the first black entertainer to perform? Uh, at, at, well, at I, I actually uh, uh, met him and took him to the dinner uh, uh, in 1946. Uh, President Harry Truman. And one of the entertainers in 46, uh, and, it was, and it was a pretty full list then. Uh, uh, you had uh, a comic team, you had a comedian, you had Senor Wences, a South American ventriloquist, you had <laughs> opera singers, you had uh, uh, piano players and comedy skits, but also in there, was it, it was billed as the seven-year-old neg- Detroit Negro piano-playing prodigy, Frankie Sugarchild Robinson. That's quite a name. That's a pretty so awesome was, stage name. Yeah, so he was seven years old in 1946. No pressure, kid. Uh, and uh, a couple things uh, to note about his uh, performance. Uh, one was he and his father came from Detroit to dinner, and Ed Sullivan was the MC, and all the entertainers were supposed to stay at what's now known as the Capitol Hilton Hotel. Uh, but the Capitol Hilton, like most downtown hotels, had a rule that the only blacks that could stay at the hotel were foreign ambassadors, foreign diplomats. No American, no African Americans could stay. And so they told Frankie and his father that they couldn't stay with the other entertainers. And Ed Sullivan went to the hotel and told them, if Frankie and his father don't stay here, none of us are staying here. We will all go to whatever hotel he is at. And the hotel uh, caved. And so the Correspondent Association, Ed Sullivan and Frankie were responsible for desegregating the Capitol Hilton Hotel. And that set up then the performance. He got there and the hotel uh, had provided the piano for him. And in the middle of his performance, the leg on the piano broke and it went crashing to the floor. And Frankie took one look up at the president and decided, I can't stop playing. 
and he got down lying on the floor and finished his song uh, playing with it on the floor, to which he got uh, a, a, a big thumbs up and an attaboy from, uh, from President Truman. Uh, but that that was the uh, the only black uh, entertainer until uh, uh, Eisenhower was president. And uh, Oscar, let me uh, see if I remember his name here. Um, uh, Papa Celentine, uh, I actually can't find it, but uh, Eisenhower, after his performance, uh, said that you are a credit to your race. Uh, Just uh, the uh, oozing awkwardness. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, re- regardless of, of the, you know, um, him him being there. Just wow. Um, so uh, I've, I've found, you know, over the, the couple of years, somebody asked me at the dinner the other night um, where, you know, President Biden gave, uh, you know, probably the epitome of like, you know, the the president giving a funny speech, you know, or trying to give a funny speech as at the same time, he's giving a policy speech talking about freedom of the press. He, he talked about, um, you know, journalists, American journalists who've been imprisoned abroad. Um, you know, I mean, like it, it was it was at times heavy and also a, a sort of a comedic lead in to Roy Wood Jr., uh, who's a more traditional comedian, ho- you know, um, talent who who rounded us out, you know, sort of in the vein of of the Colberts of the world and uh, Craig Ferguson, Jay Leno, you know, these are just some of the more you know recent people. But there there have been up, ups and downs uh, with with these comedians. I mean, they, as you, you know, you, you noted that the you know even back in 1941, you know, the the uh, MC was was a comedian there. But we've we've seen. Um, times when it just did not go over well, uh, when, when the comedian uh, lost the room, if you will, not necessarily the television audience. Uh, that, that's one thing that has, you know, there's a different dynamic. But um, there have been a couple of times when it just hasn't gone over well, and there was sort of a, of a, a correction the next year, if you will. So and the thing that comes to mind the most is when Colbert um, was uh, gave gave his speech in in character of his, you know, Colbert Nation, you know, sort of fake, uh, you know, conservative uh, populist uh, character, and then didn't go over well, you know, criticized George W. Bush, and then the next year we got Rich Little. <laughs> right, right. Well, um, I, I had great empathy for uh, Colbert. Uh, he was in an impossible situation for exactly the reason that you mentioned. Uh, there are rules about these dinners on what works. You know, you make fun of yourself, you're self-deprecating, you make fun of both parties, uh, and then you end with something about freedom of the press is, is wonderful. That oh, always I should note. I should note also it was 2006. So this is right, right. in the middle of debate over the right. Iraq war, the surge, Bush was unpopular, that kind of thing. Right. So, so he comes in in 2006 and he can't follow those rules because he can't break character. He had to stay in it. And that led to a very awkward situation. I, I, I talked to uh, Mark Russell, who was, when we went to the single comedian uh, format in 1983, Mark Russell was the first one. And he confirmed to me what every single comedian has, that at some point or another, you look over to the president of the United States to see if he's laughing. 
And everybody in the audience is looking at the president of the United States. If he's looking miserable, you're not going to be laughing. All right. You're aware that he is the guest of honor uh, there. And this nonsense that's come up in recent years that the point of the comedian is to speak truth to power is complete nonsense. It's never been the, uh, the notion of the comedian. The toughest jokes would be Bob Hope joking about Ike's golf game. You never, ever have spoken truth to power uh, or that bit mean the point. So Colbert is there and it was very awkward. And I know everybody on MSNBC loved it and you know wanted them to be tougher on Bush, but that wasn't the point of it. And in fact, Colbert was so uncomfortable, he dropped a lot of his tougher lines that he had planned. He was planning on, on presenting a, a fake uh, elementary school diploma to Bush. Uh, uh, he dropped that. Uh, and let, let me give you one footnote on, on that dinner. Uh, Karl Rove was furious uh, at, at Colbert. And as he was leaving uh, with Bush, he shouted to one of the correspondents, you know, you know, who signed this asshole? You know, what, are you, what is he there for? And he, they got in the limousine. And Rove told me later that he was still fulminating about Colbert and complaining. And it continued when they got back to the White House and they stood on the South Lawn for a few minutes. And Bush put his arm on him. And Bush, Bush wasn't the slightest bit bothered by Colbert. And he said to Carl uh, Rove, he's a comedian. <laughs> it's a comedian. It's what he does. Don't worry about it. I'm not worried about it. So Bush took it in stride. It was his people that were angry about him. And then the the flip side of it, too, is the, the sort of the, the course correction, which was we got Rich Little the next year. Rich Little, of course, a you know, a, a, a bit of a fixture of late 60s, 70s, early 80s uh, comedy. Uh, he, he was the, uh, the the talent that year. And I think that you, you had, uh, when we were talking at the dinner the other night, uh, you, you had sort of looked over your notes and said that most of the impressions, Rich Little is known as an impressionist. Uh, uh, almost all the impressions that Rich Little did were of people who were dead. Yes. Uh, which in is 2007. Not a, not a, <laughs> so. and, you know, and he had done the dinner in 1984 and wasn't a particular hit. So bringing him back in 2007, uh, when he was going to do uh, Richard Nixon, Johnny Carson, Ed Sullivan. I mean, you go down the list. These are dead people. Uh, not uh, not for a comedy formula that works. Um, and then in, in 2018, we're getting, you know, up, up against the, uh, you know, the, the, the pandemic, which shut everything down in, in 2020. We went a couple of years without the dinner. But in 2018, Michelle Wolf uh, of, of The Daily Show, again, the, the, we keep on coming back to The Daily Show, whether it's Roy Wood Jr. or Colbert or, or Michelle Wolf. Um, you know, her her act did not go over particularly well. Um, she, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, people thought that she may have gone a little too far um, in criticizing uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, now the governor of Arkansas, then the White House press secretary. And then the next year, um, the the, your, the association made the decision to not have a comedian 
be the be the talent. And so they in, they invited and and he accepted Ron Ron Chernow, the the um, historian and and perhaps most famously now at least of uh, you know the um, of Ham- Alexander Hamilton's biography, which is source material for the for the musical and. I'll be honest. I think Chernow was funnier than most of the comedians that I've uh, <laughs> heard. <laughs> uh, going back on Michelle Wolf, she is the only comedian who was asked to uh, speak truth to power. I think it was a mistake. I think it, she never should have been asked to do that. And she also she was terrible. Uh, I, there was not there was nothing redeeming about her act, and there was one reason for that. She uh, wanted to speak to her friends, to the TV audience. She didn't care about the people in the room. If she insulted the people in the room, that was fine with her. But that's not what she was asked to do. Uh, and it was the only time I've ever regretted putting us on TV because she was the only comedian who only wanted to talk to the people on TV. Uh, I should bring up one other, because she wasn't the comedian that bombed the worst. The worst performance by a comedian uh, for misreading the times was in 1975 and Helen Thomas was our president and somebody got the bright idea that if we have a Lebanese named Thomas as our president, we should have a Lebanese named Thomas as our comedian. So they brought in Danny Thomas uh, and his daughter Marlo was there who was a well-known feminist uh, and the theme of the night was our first woman president, you know, uh, hear me roar. Uh, all the speeches were about women making it. And then Danny Thomas got up and Danny Thomas gave his, his Las Vegas lounge act, the theme of which was women, ah, oh God, you got to love them, but boy, they don't have brains. Have you ever seen a woman drive? And he kept going with these women, dumb women jokes. uh, And that's a tough crowd. They started booing and hissing. And he got mad. And he he said, no, no, you don't understand. I put women up on a pedestal. And they got, he got booed some more. And when he finally mercifully finished and, and Marlo is there and we've all been in the position where we love our parents, but they do something dumb and you gotta sort of deal with it. And she saw her father getting booed and she sees reporters for the style section of the Washington Post and for the Washington Star chasing him, shouting at him, what's it was like, what did you think of being booed? What, what about the reaction? And he turned around and said, what are your names? I'm going to have you both fired. Uh, at which Marlowe said, Daddy, let's get out of here before you get killed. <laughs> that was, I think, the worst bombing. That Yeah, that, that makes the wolf performance uh, seem rather tame. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, one one thing that's interesting is, you know, like we, again, the, the point, I think, that is just that these – the, the dinner's gone through these like sort of churns, right? Where, you know, people, we have, we have the lows as you, I mean, like you mentioned earlier in the podcast that the seventies were a bit of a low. Well, you know, that, that sounds like a low there. I mean, that, that sounds like maybe the Chevy Chase Gerald Ford thing might've been the height. <laughs> Although actually that wasn't the lowest low of the seventies. 
That came two years later in 1977, where they tried to save money. So you, we had a president from a Philadelphia newspaper, and he decided the Philadelphia Entertainment. So he brought in the Mummers. Now, <laughs> people not in Philadelphia might not know what the Mummers are, but they're, they wear these very colorful uh, flamboyant costumes, and they march on January 1st in the Mummers, uh, you know, they parade. Um, and, and then in Phil, any Philadelphia Eagle celebration too since. Right, so. right. <laughs> so, so the Mummers with their golden slippers, their string bands, uh, they were brought down from Philadelphia and they chartered a couple of buses. And we provided, I'm told, cases of beer on the buses. <laughs> what and could go the, wrong? By the time the mummers got to the dinner, they were incredibly drunk. Um, and when it came time to introduce them, President Carter up on stage, um, they couldn't get through the opening with their costumes. So they sort of fell out on the, on the to try to go in between the tables and they couldn't wear all their costuming because Secret Service didn't like it. There wasn't room between the tables. So they were playing different music. They were not all on the same song. Uh, and they were stumbling around. <clears throat> and I'm I'm told that that was the worst. Uh, if only it would have been televised. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. then, then we could have had uh, that moment for all of eternity. Um, well, George, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I speak for a lot of people that I'm, I'm glad, you know, that they're, we're, we're kind of through the, the, the pandemic uh, and, and its, its effect on it. You know, we, we had to skip, you know, 2020 and 2021. Last year, Trevor, you know, we, the dinner was back, but in a, a little bit more restrained. Everybody was still careful. Trevor Noah joked that it was going to be the <laughs> super spreader event of the year, and he was not wrong. Um, you know, he, you know, a lot of people got, got COVID, uh, at, at, at that. Um, I mercifully did not, uh, you know, I, I was able to dodge that. Um, but it seems like the, the, the parties are back, you know, the institution is back. Um, and, and again, this is whether, whether people like it or not, whether they think that it's, you know, the press getting too cozy with the president or whatever, it is an important event because this is, you know, the, the, when the president is there, it makes it sort of important. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's good to have it back, I think. And, and it's also good to keep in mind the history that, that you've gone through. So thank you very much for walking us through it. Always fun to talk about. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, please rate us on iTunes, subscribe to our newsletter, and we will see you next time. Yeah.